Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and reading today from Spurgeon's Sermons on Sovereignty. And we're talking about now human inability. We did part one the last time we were together, and we continue with part two. He's talking about the difference between will not and cannot in terms of uh, following the Lord. Beloved, I speak to you who have already been quickened by the divine grace. Does not your experience teach you that there are times when you have a will to serve God, and yet you don't have the power? Have you not sometimes been obliged to say that you, you have wished to believe, but you've had to pray, Lord, help my unbelief? Because although willing enough to receive God's testimony, your own carnal nature was too strong for you, and you felt you needed supernatural help. Are you able to go into your room at any hour you choose and to fall upon your knees and say, Now it is my will that I should be very earnest in prayer and that I should draw near to God? I ask, do you find your power equal to your will? You could say, even at the bar of God himself, that you are sure you are not mistaken in your willingness. You're willing to be wrapped up in devotion. It's your will that your soul should not wander from a pure contemplation of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you find that you cannot do that, even when you are willing, without the help of the Spirit. Now, if the quickened child of God finds a spiritual inability, how much more the sinner who is dead in trespasses and sin? If even the advanced Christian, after 30 or 40 years, finds himself sometimes willing and yet powerless, if such be his experience, does it not seem more than likely that the poor sinner who has not yet believed should find a need of strength as well as a want of will. But again, there is another argument. If the sinner has strength to come to Christ, I should like to know how we are to understand those uh, continual descriptions of the sinner's state which we meet with in God's holy word. Now, a sinner is said to be dead in trespasses and sins. Will you affirm that death implies nothing more than the absence of a will? Surely a corpse is quite as unable as unwilling. Or again, do not all men see that there is a distinction between will and power? Might not that corpse be sufficiently quickened to get a will and yet be so powerless that it could not lift as much as its hand or foot? Have we never seen cases in which persons have been just sufficiently reanimated to give evidence of life and have yet been so near death that they could not have performed the slightest action? Is there not a clear difference between the giving of the will and the giving of power? It is quite certain, however, that where the will is given, the power will follow. Make a man willing and he shall be made powerful. For when God gives the will, he does not tantalize man by giving him to wish for that which he is unable to do. Nevertheless, he makes such division between the will and the power 
that it shall be seen that both things are quite distinct gifts of the Lord God. And then I must ask one more question. If all that were needed to make a man willing, do you not at once degrade the Holy Spirit? Are we not in the habit of giving all the glory of salvation wrought in us to God the Spirit? But now, if all that God the Spirit does for me is to make me willing to do these things for myself, am I not in a great measure a sharer with the Holy Spirit in the glory? And may I not boldly stand up and say, it is true, the Spirit gave me the will to do it, but still I did it myself, <laughs> and therein will I glory. Now, for if I did these things myself, without assistance from on high, I will not cast my crown at his feet. It is my own crown. I earned it, and I'll keep it. Inasmuch as the Holy Spirit is evermore in Scripture set forth as the person who works in us to will and to do of his own good pleasure, we hold it to be a legitimate inference that he must do something more for us than the mere making of us willing, and that therefore there must be another thing besides need of will or lack of will in a sinner. There must be absolute and actual lack of power. Now, before I leave this statement, let me address myself to you for a moment. I'm often charged with preaching doctrines that may do a great deal of hurt. Well, I shall not deny the charge for I am not careful to answer in this matter. I have my witnesses here present to prove that the things which I have preached have done a great deal of hurt, but they have not done hurt either to morality or to God's church. The hurt has been on the side of Satan. There are not ones or twos, but many hundreds who this morning rejoice that they have been brought near to God from having been profane Sabbath-breakers, drunkards, or worldly persons, they've been brought to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. And if this be any hurt, may God of his infinite mercy send us a thousand times as much. But further, what truth is there in the world which will not hurt a man who chooses to make hurt of it? You who preach general redemption are very fond of proclaiming the great truth of God's mercy to the last moment. But how dare you preach that? Many people make hurt of it by putting off the day of grace and thinking that the last hour may do as well as the first. Why, if, if we never preached anything which man could misuse and abuse, we must hold our tongues forever. Still, says one, well then, if I cannot save myself and cannot come to Christ, I must sit still and do nothing. If men do say so, on their own heads shall be their doom. We have very plainly told you that there are many things you can do. To be found continually in the house of God is in your power. To study the word of God with diligence is in your power. To renounce your outward sin, to forsake the vices in which you indulge, to make your life honest, sober, and righteous, it's in your power. For this you need no help from the Holy Spirit. All this you can do yourself. But to come to Christ truly is not in your power. 
until you are renewed by the Holy Ghost. But mark you, your, your lack of power is no excuse, seeing that you have no desire to come and are living in willful rebellion against God. Your lack of power lies mainly in the obstinacy of nature. Suppose a liar says that it is not in his power to speak the truth, that he's been a liar so long that he cannot leave it off. Is that an excuse for him? Suppose a man who has long indulged in lust should tell you that he finds his lusts have so girt about him like a great iron net that he cannot get rid of them. Would you take that as an excuse? Truly, it is none at all. If a drunkard has become so foully a drunkard that he finds it impossible to pass a public house, a pub, a bar, without stepping in, do you, therefore, excuse him? No, because his inability to reform lies in his nature, which he has no desire to restrain or conquer. The thing that is done and the thing that causes the thing that is done, being both from the root of sin, are two evils which cannot excuse each other. What though the Ethiopian cannot change his skin or the leopard his spots? It's because you have learned to do evil that you cannot now learn to do well. And instead, therefore, of, of letting you sit down to excuse yourselves, let me put a thunderbolt beneath the seat of your sloth, that you may be startled by it and aroused. Remember that to sit still is to be damned to all eternity. Oh, that God the Holy Spirit might make use of this truth in a very different manner. Before I have done, I trust that I shall be enabled to show you how it is that this truth, which apparently condemns men and shuts them out, is, after all, the great truth, which has been blessed to the conversion of men. Now, our second point is the Father's drawings. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. How then does the Father draw men? Arminian divines generally say that God draws men by the preaching of the gospel. Very true. The preaching of the gospel is the instrument of drawing men. Uh, but there must be something more than this. Let me ask, to whom did Christ address these words? What? To the people of Capernaum, where he had often preached, where he had uttered mournfully and plaintively the woes of the law and the invitations of the gospel. In that city he had done many mighty works, worked many miracles. In fact, such teaching and such miraculous attestation had he given to them that he declared that Tyre and Sidon would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes if they'd been blessed with such privileges. Now, if the preaching of Christ himself did not avail to the enabling of these men to come to Christ, it cannot be possible that all that was intended by the drawing of the Father was simply preaching. No, brethren, you must note again, he does not say no man can come except the minister draw him, but except the Father draw him. Now, there is such a thing as being drawn by the gospel and drawn by the minister without being drawn by God. 
Clearly, it is a divine drawing that is met, a drawing by the Most High God, the first person of the most glorious Trinity, sending out the third person, the Holy Spirit, to induce men to come to Christ. Another person turns around and says with a sneer, Then do you think that Christ drags men to himself, seeing that they are unwilling? I remember meeting once with a man who said to me, Sir, you preach that Christ takes people by the hair of their heads and drags them to himself. I asked him whether he could refer to the date of the sermon where I preached that extraordinary doctrine, for if he could, I should be very much obliged. However, he could not. But, said I, while Christ does not drag people to himself by the hair of their heads, I believe that he draws them by the heart quite as powerfully as your caricature would suggest. Mark that in the Father's drawing there is no compulsion whatever. Christ never compelled any man to come to him against his will. If a man be unwilling to be saved, Christ does not save him against his will. Well, how then does the Holy Spirit draw him? Why, by making him willing. Oh, it is true he does not use moral suasion. He knows a nearer method of reaching the heart. He goes to the secret fountain of the heart, and he knows how, by some mysterious operation, to turn the will in an opposite direction. So that, as, as Ralph Erskine paradoxically puts it, the man is saved with full consent against his will. <laughs> that, that is, against his old will, he is saved. But he is saved with full consent, for he is made willing in the day of God's power. Do not imagine that any man will go to heaven kicking and struggling all the way against the hand that draws him. Do not conceive that any man will be plunged in the bath of a Savior's blood while he's striving to run away from the Savior. Oh, no, no. It's quite true that, first of all, man is unwilling to be saved. When the Holy Spirit has put his influence into the heart, the text is fulfilled, Draw me, and I will run after thee. We follow on while he draws us, glad to obey the voice which once we had despised. But the gist of the matter lies in the turning of the will. How that is done, no flesh knoweth. It is one of those mysteries that is clearly perceived as a fact, but the cause of which no tongue can tell and no heart can guess. The apparent way, however, in which the Holy Spirit operates, we can tell. The first thing the Holy Spirit does when he comes into a man's heart is this. He finds him with a very good opinion of himself. And there's nothing which prevents a man coming to Christ like a, a good opinion of himself. Why, says man, I don't want to come to Christ. I have as good a righteousness as anybody can desire. I feel I can walk into heaven on my own rights. The Holy Spirit lays bare his heart, lets him see the loathsome cancer that is there eating away his life, uh, uncovers to him all the blackness and defilement of that sink of hell, the human heart. And then the man stands aghast. Oh, I never thought I was like this. Oh, those sins I, I thought were little. 
have swelled out to an immense stature. What I thought was a molehill has, has grown into a mountain. It was but the hyssop on the wall before, but now it has it's become a cedar of Lebanon. Oh, saith the man with, within himself, I, I'll try to reform. I'll do good deeds enough to, to wash these black deeds out. Then comes the Holy Spirit and shows him that he cannot do this. Takes away all his fancied power and strength so that the man falls down on his knees in agony and cries, Oh, once I thought I could save myself by my good works, but now I find that, like the song says, Could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no respite know? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Then the heart sinks, and the man is ready to despair. And he says, I, I can never be saved. Nothing can save me. Then comes the Holy Spirit and shows the sinner the cross of Christ, gives him eyes anointed with heavenly eye salve, and says, Look to yonder cross. That man dies to save sinners. You feel that you are a sinner? He died to save you. And he enables the heart to believe and to come to Christ. And when it comes to Christ, by this sweet drawing of the Spirit, it finds a peace with God which passes all understanding, which keeps his heart and mind through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now you will plainly perceive that all this may be done without any compulsion. Man is as much drawn willingly as if he were not drawn at all. And he comes to Christ with full consent, with as full a consent as if no secret influence had ever been exercised in his heart. But the influence must be exercised, or else there never has been, and there never will be, any man who either can or will come to the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, now we gather up our ends and conclude by trying to make a practical application of the doctrine. We trust a comfortable one. Well, says one, if what this man preaches be true, what's to become of my religion? For do you know I've been a long while trying, and I don't like to hear you say a man cannot save himself. I believe he can, and I mean to persevere. But if I am to believe what you say, I must give it all up and begin again. My dear friends, it will be a very happy thing if you do. Do not think that I shall be at all alarmed if you do so. Remember, what you are doing is building your house upon the sand. And it's but an act of charity if I can shake it a little for you. Let me assure you in God's name, if your religion has no better foundation than your own strength, it will not stand you at the bar of God. Nothing will last to eternity but that which came from eternity. Unless the everlasting God has done a good work in your heart, all you may have done must be unraveled at the last day of account. It's all in vain for you to be a churchgoer, a, a good keeper of the Sabbath, an observer of your prayers. It's all in vain for you to be honest to your neighbors and reputable in your conversation if you hope to be saved by these things. It's all in vain for you to put your trust in them. Go on. Be as honest as you like. 
Keep the Sabbath perpetually. Be as holy as you can. I, I wouldn't dissuade you from these things. God forbid. Grow in them, but do not trust in them. For if you rely upon these things, you'll find they will fail you when you need them most. And if there be anything else that you have found yourself able to do, unassisted by divine grace, the sooner you can get rid of the hope that has been engendered by it, the better for you. For it's a foul delusion to rely upon anything that flesh can do. A spiritual heaven must be inhabited by spiritual men, and preparation for it must be wrought by the Spirit of God. Well, cries another, I've been sitting under a ministry where I've been told that I could, at my own option, repent and believe. And the consequence is that I've been putting it off from day to day. I thought I could come one day as well as another. That I had only to say, Lord, have mercy upon me and, and believe, and, and then I'd be saved. Now you've taken all this hope away from me, sir. I, I feel amazement and horror taking hold upon me. Again, I say, my dear friend. I'm very glad of it. <laughs> this was the effect which I hoped to produce. I pray that you may feel this a great deal more. When you have no hope of saving yourself, I shall hope that God has begun to save you. As soon as you say, Oh, I, I cannot come to Christ. Lord, draw me, help me. I shall rejoice over you. He who has got a will, though he has not power, has grace begun in his heart, and God will not leave him until the work is finished. But, careless sinner, learn that thy salvation now hangs in God's hand. Oh, remember, thou art entirely in the hand of God. Thou hast sinned against him, and if he wills to damn thee, damned thou art. Thou canst not resist his will, nor thwart his purpose. Thou hast deserved his wrath, and if he choose to pour the full shower of that wrath upon thy head, thou canst do nothing to avert it. If, on the other hand, he choose to save you, he is able to save thee to the very uttermost. But thou liest as much in his hand as the summer's moth beneath thine own finger. He is the God whom thou art grieving every day. Doth it not make thee tremble to think that thy eternal destiny now hangs upon the will of him whom thou hast angered and incensed? Dost not this make thy knees knock together and thy blood to curdle? If it does so, I rejoice, inasmuch as this may be the first effect of the Spirit's drawing in thy soul. O oh, tremble to think that the God whom thou hast angered is the God upon whom thy salvation or thy condemnation entirely depends. Tremble and kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish from the way while his wrath is kindled but a little. Now, the comfortable reflection is this. Some of you this morning are conscious that you are coming to Christ. Have you not begun to weep the penitential tear? Did not your closet witness your prayerful preparation for the hearing of the word of God? And during the service of this morning, has not your heart said within you, Lord, save me or I perish, for save myself I cannot. And could you not now stand up in your seat and sing, O sovereign grace, my heart subdue, I would be led in triumph too, 
a willing captive of my Lord, to sing the triumph of his word. And have I not myself heard you say in your heart, Jesus, Jesus, my whole trust is in you. I know that no righteousness of my own can save me, but only thou, O Christ, sink or swim, I cast myself on thee. O oh, my brother, thou art drawn by the Father, for thou couldst not have come unless he had drawn thee. Sweet thought, and if he has drawn thee, dost thou know what is the delightful inference? Let me repeat one text, and may that comfort thee. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Yes, my poor weeping brother, inasmuch as thou art now coming to Christ, God has drawn thee. And inasmuch as he has drawn thee, it is a proof that he has loved thee from before the foundation of the world. Let thy heart leap within thee. Thou art one of his. Thy name was written on the Savior's hands when they were nailed to the accursed tree. Thy name glitters on the breastplate of the great high priest today. Aye, and it was there, and before the day star knew its place, or planets ran their round. Rejoice in the Lord. Ye that have come to Christ, shout for joy, all ye that have been drawn of the Father, for this is your proof, your solemn testimony, that you, from among men, have been chosen in eternal election, and that you shall be kept by the power of God through faith unto the salvation which is ready to be revealed. Amen. Amen. It's from the New Park Street Pulpit, Volume 4, pages 137 to 144. And thank you so much for being here today. I trust you'll look around the website while you're here. We'll have more of Spurgeon's Sermons on Sovereignty another time. You might want to get your own collection. Just go over to the Stillwater's Revival Books, PuritanDownloads.com is that site, PuritanDownloads.com. Talk to them about their Ph.D. Yeah, you can get a Ph.D. in things spiritual. It's the Puritan Hard Drive, Ph.D. I hope that you'll check that out. That's where I got this message and most everything else I share with you. Okay, God bless you. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun, and Lord willing, we'll get to talk again real soon. Bye-bye.